0: Good morning. Disclaimer, uh, I don't feel good. Where I am weak, he is strong, and so we are going to spend time in God's Word unpacking what Ruth just read to us. (sighs) The name of the sermon is Righteous Restitution. And my hope this morning is if that terminology doesn't make any sense to you, that by the time you leave this morning, it will. We're continuing our Great Exchange series today as we're walking through Isaiah 53, a chapter that is known throughout all of the Scripture. It's quoted especially throughout much of the New Testament and seems to be an eyewitness account of what had happened to Jesus on the day of Calvary and beyond, even though it happened 700 years before that taking place. Today we're in the heart of the chapter where, if I'm honest, it's a pretty large undertaking to attempt to unpack this text that is so powerful. It is so may I make up a word, gospellicious. So Isaiah fifty three verse five is where we're going to start as we walk through what is known as this fifth gospel, the Romans of the Old Testament, as some would call it. I believe it paints the clearest picture in all of Scripture how one can find salvation. Spoiler, it's not in your effort. It's in a person. Have you ever been in debt? Be honest. Yeah, that's all of you. All right, have you ever experienced the stress that comes from not being able to pay for what you've already received? Debt can cause stress, it can cause heartache, broken relationships, it can cause fear. Debt tends to come from the opportunity of credit to purchase something now and pay for it later. We're in the Christmas season which tends to be uh, one of the times that most of debt throughout the year is incurred. Kind of ironic that the season leading up to the coming of the Messiah, who ends up paying the greatest debt off in history, seems to be be the season where the most debt is acquired. It was once said that the only reason a great American, uh, that great many American families don't own an elephant is that they have never been offered an elephant for a dollar down and easy monthly payments. Isaiah 53 verse 5, but he... Was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Can you already see why this is a tough passage to teach? He was pierced for our transgressions. Let me say it in a way that maybe some of us would understand. He was pierced for our trespassing outside of God's will for his people. Jesus was pierced with the crown of thorns that the Romans had made, making fun of him, and they called him the king of Jews and put this crown on his forehead and pierced him. He was pierced by three nails, one in this wrist, one in this wrist, and one through his ankles. As he hung on the cross, (sighs) he was pierced by the spear in his side after he had given up his spirit and hung lifeless on the cross, and water and blood poured out of him. He was pierced because we chose to live our lives below God's standard. He got what we deserved, and by his grace alone, we can get what he deserves. He was crushed for our iniquities. This word crushed in Hebrew, there's no stronger expression that could be found to denote severe suffering, suffering unto death. So reality check. Have you ever for a moment, church, thought about what it costs so you could have eternal life, so you could identify yourself with Christ? I'm here to tell you that the only way you can find restitution was not in you attempting to do more good than bad. Hear me, you can't, but that you would receive the righteous restitution that is found only in Jesus Christ. Yours and my sin was so bad, so rancid, so wretched that the only way that it could be wiped away was by Jesus doing what he had done on the cross, being crushed by the Father, being sacrificed for yours and my sins. So let me just talk to you like you and I were in my office. Next time you wink at your sin, think about the fact that your sin cost God his only son. All of this suffering was not due to his mistakes. It was not due to his transgressions, his trespassing outside of the Father's will, but due to the fact that he loves his creation. It was due to the fact that he loves his people. You ever struggle, and I know you probably do, with believing that God really loves you? Think about the most popular verse in Scripture. Who's got it in memory? who knows it? You know it. What, what verse is that? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, not for God so put up with the world, for God so loved the world that he gave, don't miss that he gave, his one and only son, that whomever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is not about The time, this is about the quality. Here's the thing, church. We did our very worst, and God gave His very best. And we are created in God's image, yet most will wave off the rescue boat from saving us spiritually. Did you guys know that? Figuratively, we're swimming in the Pacific Ocean and a life raft comes or a lifeboat comes and we wave it off because we attempt to swim across the Pacific Ocean rather than humble ourselves and receive redemption it is said that cyrus the founder of the persian empire once had captured a prince and his family when they came before him the monarch asked the prisoner what will you give me if i release you half of my wealth was his reply And if I release your children, everything I possess. And if I release your wife, your majesty, I will give myself. Cyrus was so moved by his devotion that he freed them all. As they returned home, the prince said something interesting to his wife. He said, wasn't Cyrus a handsome man? With a look of deep love for her husband, she said to him, I didn't notice. I could only keep my eyes on you, the one who was willing to give himself for me. Christians, when we understand what God gave up for us, our eyes can fixate on Christ alone. His punishment, or in other translations, chastisement, brought us peace, which is actually the word that we get corporal punishment from. It was his beating, his corporal punishment that brought us peace. It was his stepping in on our behalf that made any of us forgiven. And with his wounds, we are healed. His wounds, his stripes, his willingness to endure as a vicarious sufferer, that's what paid our debt in full. It was him. The Apostle Peter quotes this when he writes to the church in First Peter, chapter two, verse 24. He says, "He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed." Jesus did this so we could die to sin that it could no longer live in us, it could no longer control us, it could no longer dominate us, because the Spirit of God can dominate us, but that we could live to righteousness. Hear me, Christian. You are not good. You are righteous. You are not good, you are righteous. The things that you do are not good. Unfortunately, the things that you do when you try to serve the Lord has a level of pride in them pretty often. But you are righteous not because of anything you've done, but what Christ has done on your behalf. By his wounds we are healed. You know some traditions in the Christian church misunderstand this verse. They misinterpret it. In fact, it was interesting when Pastor Mike and Staffing a few weeks ago said that in the denominational tradition that he grew up in, this verse was interpreted to believe that healing your physical, uh, your physical was God's MO in all things, that it was the way he manifested your salvation through your physical healing. So if you were not healed after asking God to heal you, it was because you did not have enough faith. Can I just be honest? There's nothing I've taught before that makes me want to swear more than that. This interpretation is off. It strips it of its context and emphasis of the great exchange. And the fact that the suffering servant, Jesus, stood in the gap. He took our beating for us. He gave up his righteousness and he gave it to us. But let me also speak into this enough faith stuff. I said stuff. God cares about you. I don't know if I tell you that enough. He cares about your physical, but he's more concerned with your eternal. He does not want you to have your best life now, no matter what a pastor says in Houston. He wants you to know Christ Jesus. He wants you to know him and grow in him and continue into eternity with him. Those who cannot get past the physical and temporal are unable to see the spiritual and eternal because their perspective is stunted. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. God can absolutely heal people physically. I've seen it myself. I've experienced it myself. I'm sure many of you have too. But to heal you so you can live a more comfortable life on your way to eternity without him is not the heart of God. His salvation isn't like a last meal before execution, church. It is the ransom being paid completely without you chipping in. I'm going to nerd out a little bit, a little bit of context in what we were experiencing here in Isaiah. See, this is a foreshadowing of a future event in the sacrificial system and rituals of the Old Testament. The Old Testament sets up the New Testament. Did you guys know that? It sets it up. In fact, let me get really clear. Jesus is on every page of your Bible, old and new. And it is not by accident or even by human will that Jesus fulfills so many prophecies, Or that the Old Testament seems to literally be speaking of Jesus on every page. There was the Day of Atonement. This is Leviticus 23, 27 through 28. It's also known as Yom Kippur. It was the holy day of all the Israelites' feasts and festivals occurring once a year on the tenth day. The seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. On that day, the high priest was to perform elaborate rituals to atone, to pay for, the sins of the people. This was described in Leviticus 16, 1 through 34, and the atonement ritual began with Aaron, and then subsequent high priests after him of Israel, coming into the holy of holies. God told Moses to warn Aaron not to come into the most holy place whenever he felt like it, only on this special day once a year, lest he die, verse 2. This was not a ceremony to be taken lightly, and the people were to understand that atonement for sin was to be done God's way, not ours. Before entering the tabernacle, the high priest was to bathe and put on special garments, then sacrifice a bull as a sin offering for himself and his own family. And the blood of the bull was to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Then Aaron was to bring two goats, one to be sacrificed because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites whatever sins they had done, and its blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. The other goat was used as a, you ready? Scapegoat. That's where we get this term. And the high priest would then place his hands on its head, confess over it the rebellion and wickedness of the Israelites, and send the goat out with an appointed man who released it into the wilderness. The goat carried on itself all the sins of the people, which were forgiven for another year. Can I just be honest? That sounds exhausting, doesn't it? This symbolic significance, this ritual, particularly to those of us who follow Jesus, is seen first in the washing and cleansing of the high priest and then in the man who released the goat. The, Israelite washing, the Israel washing ceremonies were required often throughout the Old Testament, and they symbolize the need for mankind to be cleansed of sin. But it wasn't until Jesus came to make the once and for all sacrifice, church, that the need for cleaning and cleansing ceremony ceased. Don't take my word for it, read Hebrews 7, verse 27. The sufficiency and completeness of the sacrifice of Christ is also seen in the two goats. Bah! The blood of the first goat was sprinkled on the ark. It was appeasing the wrath of God for another year. That's exhausting. The second goat removed the sins of the people into the wilderness, where they were forgotten and no longer clung to the people. The removal of sin by the second goat was a living parable of the promise that God would remove our transgressions from as far as the east is from the west, Psalm one twenty or one zero three, and that He would remember them no more, Hebrews eight twelve. But because of Jesus because of the name that we sing every week, because of the man God that we exalt every day. We no longer need the ceremonies and traditions to foreshadow what Christ has already done on our behalf. You don't get extra credit, church. Our salvation was obtained, guess by what? The death of Jesus, rather than our moral records. God's wrath was appeased by Jesus' death, rather than by yours, if you receive him as Lord. Verse six, we all, I love when it uses words like all, because in Hebrew, all means all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So if I said, hey, have you turned your own way, and you said no, you'd be in conflict with the Bible. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, The iniquity of us all. All have gone astray. Every single person has walked away from God. Every single human being has rebelled against their creator. That's some bad news. Every person like sheep, bah, have turned to their own way, forsaking the good shepherd's direction for them. But, oh, what a beautiful gospel. Oh, what a beautiful truth that God would pay what you and I deserve to pay. His wrath, His due punishment for our sin onto His Son, who willingly took it upon Himself. Because, yes, He loves the world. But also because He wanted and always did the Father's will no matter what. Every person has sinned, Romans 3, 9 and 23, but the servant has sufficiently shouldered the consequences of sin and the righteous wrath deserved by sinners like you and me. The manner in which God laid our iniquity on him was that God treated him as if, don't miss this, he has committed every sin ever committed by every person in all time. Though he, Jesus, was perfectly innocent of any sin. God did so to him so that wrath being spent and justice being satisfied that God then could give to the account of sinners who believe the righteousness of Christ. Did you just pick up what I put down? God doesn't look at all the stupid stuff you did yesterday. God doesn't look at the stuff you're going to do tomorrow. God sees Jesus' work. He sees what Jesus has accomplished if you're in him because he treats what you do as the only righteous acts of christ have been done this is substitution this is vicarious suffering this is substitutionary atonement that he got what we deserved and we get what he deserves It's not a sermon unless I quote Charles Spurgeon. So in Charles Spurgeon's uh, commentary on this text, he says it this way, Isaiah 53, verse 6, he says, here's the essence of the gospel. He's dead, listen to him. Sin was laid on Jesus and lies no longer on his people. Wow. I'm not trying to be simple, I'm trying to be clear. Our iniquities were laid upon Christ He who didn't sin got our sins so we could be included in the Son. My translation. The gospel starts, and I don't want you to miss this. The gospel starts with your need. It starts with your need, church. Do you know that you are in need? Do you know that your iniquities create a debt that needs to be paid for? Now, I don't want any of you to go home after the service and your big takeaway to be, well, I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do about it. That's not what I'm hoping for. Like, I'm not begging that that's what you take away, but that might be a good start. The bad news is you are a sinner, just like me. The good news is there's a solution for your sin, and his name is Jesus. Not that you would then be perfect in a worldly sense because you became a Christian, but you'd be justified, made right in a spiritual sense if you humble yourself and realize your need for Jesus. I was meeting with a young man this week who started coming to this church. He'd experienced a church that came in Jesus' name but not, did not teach the Jesus from the Bible that many of us know. He was worried about his standing with God And we were having a conversation, we read scripture and we talked about repentance. One of the things that he was told was that he had to go back to every single person he had ever offended and apologize to them. That sounds exhausting. we were talking about repentance, and I took him back to what I've said many times, and I think it's just a simple way of defining repentance. Repentance means to change direction, but if you want to know if you've done it, if you want to know if you have a heart that is full of repentance, if you're willing to repent, here's how you know. Are you heartbroken over your sin? I didn't say, do you feel guilty over your sin? Are you heartbroken over your sin, and are you in love with the Son? Do you realize that you can't pay for your sin? Well, You could with your own life, but that'll be an eternity without God. Or you could allow the rescue boat in Jesus to come and wash away your sin because of what he's accomplished. The great news of the gospel is that when you understand you need God to intervene, he does. Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This verse, I don't know about you, out of this entire passage, this verse may be the one that I'm most in awe of when it comes to Jesus. He kept his mouth shut. I don't know if you guys know this about me, if you know me at all, but like, I really like to talk, And I'm someone that for most of my life wants to make sure that those who I believe are wrong know it. Anybody else? Okay, me and Sarah. Praise God. (laughs) God's grace and growth in my life has proven over and over that he is at work. And continuing to refine me, to give me opportunities to keep my mouth shut when I am supposed to. A diagnostic of maturity. You ready for this? Those of you that kind of want to know... A diagnostic of maturity is how you respond verbally when someone sins against you. I'm not talking about Matthew 18, all right? Some of you were like, what about Matthew 18? Yeah, Matthew 18, they sin against you. Go to them, talk to them. You better, don't make me do it. I'm step three, all right? Go to them. But what I'm talking about is how you react in the moment. Do you react without the emotion that would attempt to destroy rather than reconcile? Jesus, when wrongly accused, when he was beaten, when he was spit on, when he was spit at, he did not open his mouth. I've failed time and time, and probably more than all of you based on firsthand information. I've failed over and over and over throughout my life, but God has and is refining me, and you know how I know that I'm growing? because he keeps giving me opportunities to blow it. And even though I still do, there's sometimes some times I don't. It's crazy. Can I be real? Is that okay? Is everyone okay? I just need you to confirm that's okay for me to be real. All right. The first 10 months working here sucked. And that's the nicest way I can say it. I loved worshiping with many of you that were here. I loved studying the scripture. It was so hard to be here because I had people here that were mad that I was preaching the Bible. And you're like, what? Yeah. They didn't like that I wasn't willing to waver from making disciples of Jesus. There were people that didn't like that I wouldn't cater to their preference rather than what the Bible teaches. And even though I got called names in front of my family and I had my character questioned, And I honestly, personally think I lost years in my earthly life. Hurry up, Jesus. You know what? God was, is, and will always be faithful. And because of his grace in my life to not fight anger with anger, the Lord has richly blessed this community. Look around real quick. Look, do you see anyone you don't know? Yep. Shame on you. Get to know people. And not just in service, but when you leave this place, when you connect with coffee that many servants serve to make that happen, when you go out to lunch, when you have brunch before church, when you have a week, not just community groups, don't just make connections about us setting it up for you. Ask a brother or sister, hey, you want to grab coffee? Hey, you want to spend some time? Hey, you want to read some scripture with me? I know it sounds crazy awkward, but it'll change your life. Jesus was being tried, convicted, and executed for claiming he was God. (laughs) You know what's crazy about that? He is God. People are like, Jesus never said he was God. Then why did he get put on the cross, stupid? I'm sorry. That just (laughs) tends to be my response. Yet like a sheep before a shearer, he did not open his mouth. Sheep were used as sacrifices on the day of atonement, on Passover, but the servant kept his mouth shut. He did not attempt to vindicate himself. He did not attempt to rain down angels to stop the beating or the torture or the nailing to the cross because as we studied last week, we understood that he completed his mission by perfectly obeying and living out the Lord's will for him. It's so easy to miss what Jesus did. It wasn't just that he died on the cross, but that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect life, and that doesn't just mean he didn't do anything wrong. It means that he did everything right. So if I ask you, have you sinned today? The answer is yes, because you haven't done everything you ought to. But he did. Not just that, but he completed his mission. Without his willingness to obey, we would all be without a savior Without Jesus completing his mission, we would have no way to come to God innocently and forgiven. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He dead. For the transgression of my people, he was punished here's the interesting thing he died on the cross but never forget what happened three days later and we're going to study that in specifics next week jesus endured what is known as a restraint of justice because even though pontius pilate saw no sin in jesus the crowd still wanted jesus to be crucified and because jesus was voluntary i don't know if you guys noticed that it happened You live in a post-resurrection time. Jesus has proven that he is who he says that he is. And even though many gave him up to die, you and I know that his death was not final. And because of that, our death will not be final if we're included in Christ. If you today can make this confession, I hope you'll hear me. If you today can make this confession that Christ lived a perfect life, not just not doing anything wrong, but doing everything right, completing his mission, that he died for your sin, he vicariously suffered for you, and he physically rose from the dead. See, your bar tab was paid, and the resurrection is your receipt. If you can confess that this morning, you're not just saved. You're being sanctified. Sanctification and justification are not separate. When you were justified before a holy and perfect God, God puts you on this, this, uh, this journey of growing to look more like Jesus. Because of your understanding of the substitutionary sacrifice, you are being changed and transformed more into likeness throughout this confession being acted out as you continue to grow in your obedience to Jesus. The son who suffered, the son who did not open his mouth, the son who was afflicted, the son who was crushed, the son who was wounded so that we could be healed, this is the son who did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. I hope there isn't a person in this room that can leave today without knowing that you are so loved by God. are so cherished and important to the king that he would lay down his life and he would get what you deserve and in an exchange you would get what he deserves life eternal life right standing with god I just say that many in this room are going through it right now and by it, you know what I mean. You're dealing with something that you can't handle on your own. You're dealing with grief because of a loved one being sick or possibly passing away this time in the year. You're dealing with fear because you're sick and you aren't really sure what will happen. You're struggling because maybe you're in debt and you don't know what to do about it. Maybe you have anger because someone else has sinned against you and you haven't on to them? Because he has suffered. Because he has endured pain, grief, sorrow, and even disconnect from the Father, he knows what you're going through. He has endured it. He has taken it upon himself. We've studied in the past many times Romans chapter 5. And we understand because of this passage, as Paul talks to the church in Rome, that suffering produces something. It produces endurance, and endurance is what we need in order to continue on in this marathon which we call the Christian life. And it is through that endurance that we're tested and refined which produces character. And it is that character of growing more in the likeness of Jesus that produces hope. Hope in a future glorification, in a future eternity without sickness, without quarrel, without sin, that is evidenced by your conformity into Christ's likeness. It's just a taste of where you're headed. So if you take one thing away today, I don't have it on the screen. It's not a a quote that I put up there. I'm just gonna say it to you, but I'm gonna say it to you once, and I hope that you'd hear me. If you take one thing away today, I hope that you understand that the master of the universe loves you. So I'm going to geek out a little bit. No, I'm not going to use Marvel references. I'm going to geek out on some wordsmithness in the English language and what we understand in the Bible. And so some of you, your eyes are just going to go in the back of your head. I get it but this is, really under, this is really important to understand the, the reference I'm going to use after this. The word expiation, say it with me. <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. Begins with the prefix ex, which means out of or from. My ex-job. Expiation means to remove something. In biblical theology, it has to do with taking away or removing guilt by means of paying a ransom or offering an atonement. It means to pay the penalty for something. Thus, the, acts, uh, the act of expiation removes the problem by paying for it in some way. You guys with me so far? It's in order to satisfy some demand. And Christ's expitiation of our sin means that he paid the penalty for it and removed it from consideration against us. So it's been paid. You can't bring it back up. It's gone. On the other hand, propitiation, say it back to me. That was better. Has to do with the object of the expitiation. The prefix in this case is pro, which means For. Propitiation has to do with what brings about a change, don't miss this, in God's attitude towards us, so that we are restored to fellowship and favor of God. In a sense, propitiation brings in the personal element and stresses that God is no longer angry with us about. Propitiation is the result of expitiation. The expitiation is the act that results in God's changing His attitude towards us. Expitiation is what Christ did on the cross. The result of Christ's act of expitiation is that God is propitiated. It is the difference between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one receiving the ransom. So many of you in this place think, well, Jesus died for my, for my sins, and so he's, he's given me the keys to the kingdom I'm in, but I still have to earn my keep to be here. I still have to do enough good so he doesn't kick me out. We act like we have to pay him back for what he gave to us as a gift. And hear me, church, it was a gift, not a loan. So I don't want us to miss that today. His sacrifice on your behalf was done so that you could be adopted as a son or daughter of God's. Not an indentured servant. When you act as an indentured servant, or let me use a context we probably understand a little bit more, as an employee of God's, you're expected to do exactly what he tells you the first time, and you're supposed to do it right. And if you don't, you're in danger of losing your status and place or job. Let me give you an example. The other day, I was talking to my son, I have four kids, Reagan, 11, Lorelai, who's going to be 10 next Friday, Evie, who is 7, they're all odd right now, well, they're always odd, but they're all odd ages right now, (laughs) and then Boston, my one and only son, praise God, and my son, Boston, and I were talking, and I said, Boston, would you draw me a picture? He goes, yeah, and and he goes, what do you want me to draw? And I said, I want you to draw something that makes you think of you and me. You guys Ready? Its cute, right? So, can anyone tell what that is? Yeah, that's my truck. <laughs> so what Boston thinks of me thinks we're going in Daddy's truck to go get a haircut, you know, because our hair's super spiky in here.) <laughs> now, if I worked for a graphic design company and Boston worked for me. Yeah, raise out of working for me. <laughs> the St. the Mona Lisa. That's all I'm saying. But he's my son. And because he's my son, church, I'm really grateful that he drew this. Because it reminds me that he cares. It reminds me that he sees something between him and me. That there's something that we have together. <laughs> I'm totally going to frame this. this in my office after the service. (sighs) But what we need to understand, we don't earn our salvation, and no matter how much good we attempt to do, when we come to God, we're not indentured servants. We're sons and daughters of the God most high. And so no matter how much time I put into a sermon, no matter how much time I try to work on being the best pastor I can be for the Lord, the sermon still looks like this. My works still look like this. No matter how great I think I am, I'm not great without Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you it's not about perfection, it's about pursuit. I didn't expect Boston to draw the best picture possible. I expected him to just show me part of his heart. And so, we, those of us who have received Christ, I want to encourage you live for him know that when you do works for the Lord and not yourself, we have a God that's proud of you. We have a Father in heaven that doesn't rejoice when you're hurting. He comes into it. We have a God that rejoices when you understand that you need him. God calls us to himself as children. You and I do not bring anything to the Father that is perfect other than Christ's perfect record that God has already given to us. So please, Christian, live in the freedom that your life has been bought at a price. And not only that, but your debt has been paid. And the Father's attitude towards you is one that loves a child as only a parent can love a child. Worship team, would you come on up?